Well, good day, folks, and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, the podcast where every week or so we cover the world of aviation and look at it from an Australia-Pacific point of view. Steve Fisher back with you once again, and uh, this is a uh, special episode this week. Uh, we're just going to uh, cover something that we've been uh, covering over the weekend, and to help me do that, as always, is Graham McHeron. G'day, mate. Hey, mate. How you going? Yeah, yeah, good. Now, uh, boy, have we had a busy weekend recently. Oh, yeah. It's been pretty full on from uh, expecting we were going up to tomorrow and then discovering we couldn't to suddenly finding that I had a slot to fly a DC-3 to and from Albury over a couple of days and then all of us jumping on the DC-3 to go for a quick flight around Melbourne on the uh, on the Sunday. It's It's been a pretty full-on weekend, especially as uh, the Saturday night after we got back from Albury included a bit of a gathering at the uh, Rabin Air Museum to uh, listen to a couple of presentations, one of which was uh, Lane Kidby, one of Australia's better-known um, adventurers. He's a uh, He's done quite a number of uh, reenactment flights. One of the uh, more notable flights he's done is uh, flying a replica Vickers Vimy bomber, a World War One bomber, from London to Australia as part of a reenactment of a great air race. And uh, he also did the same kind of flight when he flew a uh, restored uh, Avro Avian biplane from London to Australia as part of a reenactment of Bert Hinkler's famous flight. So uh, quite an experienced guy, and uh, it was absolutely fascinating hearing his stories about flying the uh, Vimy and the Avian through the Middle East and uh, down through Asia into Australia. Yeah, I uh, was pretty, pretty full on stuff. But, and also he talked about how they uh, managed to build the replica. Uh, they built it in the US and how they got it across to the UK. Uh, one thing that he didn't touch on that is a little bit of trivia for those of us who um, actually watched everything on the various Star Wars DVDs is that uh, some of the sound effects that were used in the first, the, the later produ- produced Star Wars episodes, episodes, um, I think they were used in two and three, for the um, clone troopers attack craft, the sound of that was actually a modified version of the sound of the Vickers Vimy flying around the uh the sound guys sent a tech down to record the sound of that uh, bomber the replica as it was flying around and uh working itself out so just a little bit of uh star wars geek trivia there for you there's a bit of trivia you wouldn't find every day in, in your average podcast grant Oh, and especially not an aviation one, but hey, you know, it was a Vickers Vimy, it was a replica, it was stooging around and it sounded pretty good, so they went and recorded it. Of course, they um, they hacked around with it in the sound sound lab, but uh, yeah, at the core, it's a Vickers Vimy stooging its way around the circuit. Yeah, excellent. Now, uh, as Grant said, Lang gave a very detailed speech and uh, it went actually a little longer than we thought. We had originally intended to uh, pop this speech in with our next uh, news episode, our normal episodes that we normally do. However, uh, Lang spoke at length and in fact, this uh, speech that he did goes for uh, roughly 53 minutes. So what we decided we'd do here is just make it a standalone episode. Uh, what you're going to hear here is uh, the warts and all story about how uh, he came to uh, start this project, how he built the aircraft, getting the process he went through to get the aircraft certified uh, over in the United States, and uh, even more interesting, how he got managed to get the thing flying in the UK. <laughs> really, really interesting talk. So, uh, folks, um, sit back and relax. Have a listen to this. It's really interesting, and uh, we'll talk to you on the other side of it. Thanks very much, mate. I noticed a few people here that uh, have heard these stories before, but don't worry, uh, it's the old story, the older I get, the better I was. And uh, the crocodiles have got bigger and the natives more savage and the women more prolific, so uh, the stories have probably changed slightly since you last heard them. We won't let that worry us. Um, Initially, I was asked to come down and talk about the 34 air race, and I wasn't an expert on that, and they, they 
uh, coming, we got someone who actually knew something about it, so that was that was good. But uh, uh, the flights that I did in in our aircraft uh, were not tests of stamina like the 34 Air Race was. And the only comment on that I'll make, I've got uh, Pangborn, like the American navigator in the Lockheed, he did a blow-by-blow um, written report, every radio message and that. And the thing that stuck in my mind after they'd been uh, something like 30 hours without sleep, they landed in India to refuel, had 20 minutes to refuel, and to pick up their uh, uh, their energy, they both uh, had a large tumbler of whiskey each and <laughs> set off back into the air for another 20 hours in the air. So uh, no wonder photos of those guys, their eyeballs hanging out uh, are the things that you see. Uh, we certainly weren't uh, into that situation, uh, though we did some 12-hour legs in the venue, which is a pretty long time to be sticking with your head out in the wind. Um, in relation to the 34 flight, I suppose it all started really with Ross Smith and, and the, uh, um, the request by the Australian Government to have an aircraft fly from England to Australia under 30 days uh, at the end of the First World War. Uh, quite a number of pilots took up the challenge. Um, several of the crews were killed in the attempt and only two aircraft made it, the Vickers Vimy, uh, which was the uh, Ross and Keith Smith one, that aircraft is at Adelaide Airport now, and that was the one that we completely replicated off the, off the original plans. And uh, Para, uh, and his DH-4, which is in Canberra at the, uh, I think it's the War Memorial at Canberra. And uh, if you've ever read his story, it's a chain of disasters. And they finished up with a Wolseley car radiator in it and landing on a polo field and being attacked by the polo players for ru ruining their game and all sorts of things. And they arrived about six months late, but they still got second prize. <laughs> uh, that's what really... Uh, broke the ice for uh, the public realising that aeroplanes were no longer either rich men's toys or weapons of war, that something could be done with them. Um, so I'll start with the Vimy side of it. Peter McMillan uh, is an American friend of mine, he's a stockbroker, um, and he was an entrant in the 1990 air race that I organised from England to Australia for pre-1950 aeroplanes. We had 26 aeroplanes. Peter flew a Harvard and that, and we got, got to know each other pretty well. He came back a year or so later, and we were camping over on, uh, on Morton Island off Brisbane there, um, sitting down, I, th I think we might have hit the grog a bit much, and we decided that uh, Peter had never heard of the Vickers Vimy, and I've always had this in the back of my mind, so I said, why don't we build a Vickers Vimy and recreate that? So exactly uh, one year and one day after that, the aircraft flew, so uh, was, uh, there's no problem that time and money can't fix and if you haven't got one you can fix it with the other, so uh, Peter was a stockbroker and the, so he said I'm going to start, I'll start work and finance the project and luckily Shell came in uh, and they, they paid a million dollars of the 1.3 million dollars it cost to build the aeroplane, so that really got us on the way. And uh, I spent the year, we had workshops here in Australia, all the metal work, the, uh, um, all the undercarriage, the engine mounts, the engines were done here in Australia, uh, and all the woodwork and the final assembly was done in, in San Francisco. So I spent the whole time commuting backwards and forwards and uh, 
we had a few adventures uh, backwards and forwards and had a, had a little bit of help. Um, we had a few problems getting the aircraft uh, uh, back to America when we had all the bits here in Australia. Uh, the uh, a bit of checker time here. You're right. Uh, the uh, uh, the bits all had to be assembled in Australia. Uh, test tested the engines, did the uh, uh, full CASA testing on the engines, which is many many hours. Them roaring, one of the engines roaring away at Archerfield. Complete waste of time because uh, it was done under the FAA, and the FAA gave us an inspector who was really interested in the aeroplanes. So he came down and uh, he was wonderful help. So we should have built the whole damn thing in, uh, in America. But uh, I'll just relate one humorous story. The ladies will have to forgive me for this. It's, uh, it's not politically correct. So the fuselage had to go. Um, um, one of the uh, the freight companies, DHL, said, "Right, I will uh, we'll ship it over to the states, and you can go with it." So. Took the fuselage down to uh, down to Sydney Airport and all the other bits, and we hopped on this freighter, and it was the most clapped-out 747 you've ever seen. And these guys came out in their uniforms, hopped into the uh, hopped into the front of this absolutely cruddy 747. It must have been the first one ever built. Um, and uh, there was uh, the the flight engineer and the two pilots. And as soon as they hopped on the aeroplane, they took all their, their clothes off, and the Americans wore these long underpants. And they flew the whole trip in their underpants so they didn't crush their clothes, so it was all hanging out. <laughs> we took off from Sydney Airport uh, with this thing in the back, and the tower rings up and says there's something coming out of the wing of the plane. They looked out, and one of the dump valves was dumping out of the wing, and it was just like a fire hose. You couldn't believe it. And these guys looked out the window, looked at each other, said, do you want to go back? No, I don't want to go back. So they just ignored it, and they went... <laughs> And I think halfway to Brisbane before they emptied that particular tank, but they had heaps of fuel to get to. <laughs> so talk about pollution. But uh, we got to... Uh, uh, the point of this story is we got there, the, the uh, boss in, Hong, in uh, Hong Kong hadn't been told about it, really got the shit, so it was right over Christmas time. Uh, who said you can shift this aeroplane? You know, this old aeroplane's nothing to do with us. And I said, the headquarters said, well, we haven't been told and we're in charge of this stuff. And he created so many problems and resulted in my beard being shaved off because we had to go on MD-80 and there was a rule there that you weren't allowed to have beards because of the oxygen system, which I, I don't know why. So I had to shave my beard off. I think he made that up. <laughs> and uh, anyhow, we eventually got on and I used to have arguments with this guy and he was uh, uh, an Armenian guy. Uh, but God knows, because his first name was Mustafa, which is a common Arabic name. But his second name was spelled K-U-N-T, so I thought <laughs> So we suffered for a few days, but he suffered for a lifetime. So, so that's how the Vimy got there, because I'm a staffer, helped us get it there. So we got the aircraft to the States. Uh, the Yanks were good. The FAA were fantastic. We had some wonderful artisans working this aircraft that was built exactly from the 1919 plans, which we'd managed to get hold of from Vickers. Uh, full set of plans. Bill Whitney, well-known aeronautical engineer in Brisbane, got the plans, gave them to his boys, and they redrew all the plans on, on the modern CAD system, just to make sure. He had two minor changes on bolt sizes on the undercarriage, and everything else met full modern stress uh, 
So everything they do with their slide rules back then, uh, they knew how to work a slide rule because the computer couldn't find any faults at all in the, uh, in the design of the aircraft. We resisted the uh, temptation to make this aircraft modern in any way and we could have easily made the aircraft fly so much better just by doing a few aer uh, aerodynamic changes to it. We thought, oh, you know, we're trying to recreate it. It flew OK in 1919. It lifted 2,000 uh, pounds of bombs, which was a hell of a lot, and a lot of World War II aircraft wouldn't lift 2,000 pounds of bombs. Uh, all, all hung externally, and the Smith brothers did it. So going back to Ross and Keith Smith, uh, Ross, uh, it's little known that Ross uh, uh, had already done a lot of uh, flying in the few months after the uh, First World War. In fact, he, he was uh, in the Middle East. He, uh, he's mentioned in uh, Lawrence's book, uh, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. There's nearly a whole chapter on Ross Smith in there. And uh, when they sent one Handley Page bomber out to the Middle East, uh, it's amazing that the POMs would have given the colonial uh, ladies get so he must have had a huge reputa reputation even then with the British and they, they let this Australian get hold of the only uh, big bomber they had in the Middle East so he flew the Handley Page which is actually bigger than the Vimy. Straight after the war he and the uh, Deputy Chief of the Royal Air Force flew the Handley Page all the way to India. Um, so Ross had actually flown half the trip uh, in a big, big bomber. Um, then he was aiming to do the, the trip to Australia, got on a boat, and off the Malaysian coast the boat blew up and he had to row ashore and it had all sorts of adventures. And um, the palms at this stage were bombing the hell out of the poor Kurds have been bombed by everyone since time immemorial. And so they borrowed his Handley Page while he's away and wrecked it on him. So uh, he went back to England by boat and convinced Vickers, with the help of General Salmon, the uh, Deputy Chief of the Air Force, uh, to give him this brand new bomber. Everyone says, oh, what pioneers they were. Well, no, it's not. Because you've got to put yourself in their frame of mind. It's like an Australian Air Force guy saying, oh, we want to do break the, break the world record, and going to uh, uh, Lockheed, and they say, oh, right, we'll give you a brand new stealth bomber to do it. And that he was get, got the latest, greatest, best thing that the aviation industry could produce at that time. So that they weren't going in thinking, Christ, we're going to be killed in this thing. They were, they were saying, you know, we've had three, four years of flying and these horrible aeroplanes have slowly been getting better during the war. And now we've got this, you know, nothing's going to beat this. is the best aeroplane that's ever going to be built. This is the, the latest thing. So that was their psychology. They were very psychologically... Uh, um, upbeat about setting off. Some of the others in the race, they're old DH-4s and, and horrible aeroplanes, well they, they really were taking a big risk and they knew they were taking a risk. So they had a, had a good start. Ross got his brother, uh, Keith, and two uh, uh, mechanics he'd worked for in the Middle East. Uh, two fairly brilliant guys, Shires uh, was the last of them to die. Um, but um, Bennett was uh, uh, the lead mechanic, and uh, off they went. We did much the same thing. We got aircraft built in America. The Americans said, you've got to have 50 hours for experimental. And they came out, and the, our inspector was an old inspector, 
and he, he did something that Castle would never do. He'd cut, he came out and inspected the aeroplane and said, oh, why'd you do this? I remember that if, if you turned this around, and he, offered, he was offering advice all the time. I saw this back in 1955, we were working on something, and, and it was wonderful the help the FAA gave us. And the Americans whinge about the FAA, but I've got a lot of time for them. Uh, so 50 hours, he was there for the test flight. Um, Peter Hoare from England, who's the test pilot from England, he flew as co-pilot on the replica that the Vickers had built back in the 60s. And that flew for a few hours and then caught fire and they put the fire out, but that's now in the Air Force Museum. So Peter came out and I flew with him on the first flight and we took off and everyone was surprised. We taxied out and just took off because I thought we were going to be taxiing up and down doing taxi runs. Well, that's a, that's a bloody recipe for a ground lip if ever there was one. So if the bloody engines are running, well, what more can you do? You're not proving anything by charging up and down the taxiway in a tailwheel aeroplane. So we took off and away we went, and just as we, we turned crosswind, we had an engine failure, so that was terrific. So the first landing was a single engine landing, and of course, with the Vimy, the, uh, um, the single engine performance is 300 feet a minute going down, taking to the scene of the accident. So <laughs> the first landing, lucky it was a huge, big, deserted airstrip, uh, Hamilton Base, just outside San Francisco, which was built in the 50s for three fighters to go across. So it was about 150 metres wide, the runway. So that was good. So we landed and Peter got out, went to change his underwear, hopped on an aeroplane, went back to England. So that was it. <laughs> so when we got the engines fixed, I did, I, did this, I did the first real circuit in the aeroplane. But it was very easy to land. Uh, dog of a thing to fly, but very easy to land. Very light wing loading and uh, only seven pounds per square foot, which is, I think it's lighter than the Titan Moth. So even though it was a big 12,000 pound aeroplane and a 72 foot wingspan, it just fluttered around the sky. Uh, wasn't naturally stable, so I had to fly the thing all the time. The ailerons didn't work that much. You know, I don't even know why we put them on there. But um, if you see photos, there's some photos on the um, a documentary the National Geographic did and there's a one shot in the early stage of the helicopter flying above us and you'll see us turning and you see the big kick of rudder go in and the wing starts to go up and then you put on full aileron to stop the stop the turn going. <laughs> bit like bit like gliders holding uh, holding off aileron to, to stop the roll. But uh, um, Peter never never actually got that and all the flying that Peter did we used to fly day and day about on the trip and Peter never got that uh, uh, he always wanted to fly it like a modern aeroplane. And I, I just used to put, put my hands on top of the wheel and the cockpit was very crowded and it was so noisy we couldn't talk to each other, we just had to pass notes. And, uh, uh, and I just used to push it round and, and just not look at the skid ball wanging from side to side. And you, you'd get the roll going and, and then uh, you'd put a bit of rudder in the other one, kick it back and stop it. But Peter used to try and fight it, and he'd fight all day long. He finished up with blisters on his hands at the end of each day, and his shoulders aching, and having to go and get massages. And, uh, it was all right in Singapore, because you a happy ending, but that's all right. Uh, the, uh, the, the aircraft, that, that was the, the sort of crew. This was at the rollout that we had. Could you hold that for just a second? Did you want a... Uh... Oh, yeah, here. So cool. This This is a sponsor sponsor thing to roll out. Um, uh, this is John. Uh, this is John Lanou. This, this oh, sorry. This is John Lanou here. 
and Dan Nelson. They're the two guys. John was a, uh, the set builder for the San Francisco Opera. He'd built his own, own aeroplane, but we didn't need aviation people building this, otherwise we'd still be building the damn thing. <laughs> and uh, and Dan, Dan was a uh, guy that did all those trick things for the movies, all those funny cars that turn upside down and all that. And they were two real fast workers, but their workmanship was just brilliant. Um, this fellow here was the Australian guy from Brisbane who built the, uh, built the engine. This is Peter, my partner. Uh, a few other guys, this is my wife, she did all the administration for the whole, whole thing, she just, because I had anything to do with paper and money, and so Bev just, on all the trips she just does all that stuff. So this was the, uh, uh, this was the rollout night that we had. Uh, whoever took the photo was good because we didn't have the other engine there, but, uh, <laughs> um, so th that was the crew that built it, and this, this was the hangar that we got for free from the, uh, uh, from the uh, army, I went, went and conned the army and to get this hangar that had abandoned the base. Then we had to uh, get the aircraft, after we'd done all the test flying, we had to get it to England. And so we had, uh, uh, had run out of time and we'd run out, started running out of money at that stage, so I thought we'd see if we can get a galaxy. So I talked to him and the Yanks said, oh, impossible, can't do it, can't do it. And I went here, went there, went to the Air Force, went everywhere. And uh, in the end, I thought, help, you know, I'll just plunge in. So I looked up the phone book, looked up the Pentagon, got on the switch. I said, I want, want to talk to the general who owns all the galaxies. <laughs> so they, they said, oh, I'll put it through it anyhow. He said, all right, I'll put it through to the general's office. And so got his secretary and said, I want to talk to the general. Who was about historic flights. And said, oh, he's interested in that sort of stuff. But I'm afraid he's away on holidays. We're going to talk to the colonel. Uh, who's his chief of staff? So I said, put me through to the colonel. So I said, I've just been onto the general's office and told you can help me, you see. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the colonel said, oh, you just give us a couple of hours. He said, oh, right over the uh, Galaxy Air Guard mob from the airfield just south. They've got a training trip to England coming up about that day, if you can be there on this particular day. So that was good. So we flew it down to. Uh, just south of uh, where we were, and uh, pulled the wings off the aeroplane. And they, they uh, no, we didn't pull the wings off the aeroplane, broke it in half. It's, there's a natural join that was in there originally, four bolts hold the whole three fuselage. And we pushed it in sideways into this galaxy. And Vickers were just so brilliant designing this aircraft to know that it would fit one inch inside the galaxy and the guys inside were pushing the roof lining up in the galaxy otherwise we would have had to, here it is here now that's that's the back bit going and that was really easy but you can imagine the whole front of the here it is going in and it was one inch of space <laughs> so the Yanks being the Yanks they said oh if it, who's, who's going with it and I said oh who can we have and they said oh well, whoever you want. So the whole crew. My wife. <laughs> so we sat up the top of the galaxy, crossed to Dover in New York State, refueled there, all the way across the Atlantic to Milden Hall in England, landed in Milden Hall, um, pulled it out the back of the galaxy, and the colonel of Milden Hall came down and said, what's all this about? And he said, this is this. And he said, I haven't been told about this. And he said, well, put it in the hangar and fix it and Buddy, get out of here. <laughs> 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 
really pissed off. And we needed help, you see. So, of course, all the, all the American airmen driving past us, and they're all in the hangar, you see, and every 10 minutes there's a young officer or sergeant, oh, yeah, mob, get back to work. And four more buckets of oil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in one day, we, with the help of the, these guys racing off from what they were supposed to be doing, helping us and all that, we had the whole thing reassembled at Mildenhall, so that was really good. Um, but the British CIA, it makes you feel really good about the Australian captain. So. <laughs> they didn't want this thing to fly in England. It was an experimental aircraft, an American registration, etc., etc. So we we're going to fly from Mildenhall to Brooklands and land on the where, where all the bimmies were made. It was Brooklands Museum. If anyone's in England, you should visit Brooklands Museum. It's it's the place. It's where the where the racetrack was as well. Um, and we had to do some photography, and we wanted to do some photography for National Geographic over London. And it was a nice sunny day, and we got this message to say that you've, you've got to land at Northwold, there's a message waiting for you. So we landed at Northwold, and they said, oh, there's a, uh, uh, a fellow uh, here from the CA, and said he's been appointed as your, uh, your inspector while you're here. And he left a letter, I opened this letter, and it, and it said, I strongly disagree with this aircraft being in England. You are not approved to fly over London. You may do your photography as far west as the end of the runway at London City Airport, which is down the river. Uh, he said, if one wing goes over the end of that runway, this aircraft will fly in England over my dead body. <laughs> and this is on an official Talk about idiots. So we went down there and there we were. We were flying at London City Airport. It's a big white elephant because they got so many rules and restrictions on, on the aircraft and no one was using it. So we were going up and down and, and with a chase plane. And here's this guy standing on the end of the runway and watching, watching us as we did our circuit. So, oh yeah, they're just hopeless. Um, so. I just suggest that. Oh no, I'll, I'll tell you later. This is the uh, the Australian. Oh, can we go back to that one? This is the this is at Oki uh, when we landed there. This is Dan who came with us for the whole trip. Uh, Peter and myself. Here's Mick Reynolds, he's my best mate and he was in the army. Uh, this, this guy is a fantastic guy, he was an army aviation corporal and Mike Heaney was a, uh, another army aviation guy. We needed a support aeroplane and uh, having been in the army and knew how the system works, uh, it's not what you know, it's who you know. So we managed through the system, I rang Mick up. Mick had gone back into the army after he he got out of the army with me and, and was a business, and he'd gone back as the elder statesman and Oki as an instructor up there. And uh, so we got onto this this wonderful brigadier who was interested in aviation, and said we we need a nomad. And he said, oh, Jesus, nomads flying right across the world and all that. He said, I'll see what I can do. But his job in the army headquarters was to go across to Parliament once a week to the Minister of Defence and just give him the, a half hour briefing on what's happening with the Army during the week and have the Minister sign all the, all the documents and all that sort of stuff. So what he did, he went there and he said, you know, this is all happening in the Army this week. 
And he said, just sign the documents. And yeah, yeah, we've got 30,223 people, 2,000 tonnes of pineapple, 6,000 tonnes. There's a nomad going to England. You know, <laughs> so Senator Ray, who was a minister there, so we got the signature. Uh, but it hadn't been approved by the army. So Peter Simpson, another mate of mine, was the CO at Oakley. He liaised direct with the Air Force and heard that there was a C-130 empty going for some celebration in England. And the Air Force said, if you get her down to Ambley tomorrow morning, we'll pull the wings off and stick them back at the her. And he really put his bum on the line because there was no approval from the Army office until this aircraft was passing through Singapore. So, <laughs> so everyone was out there, everyone was trying to help us. It was, was really good. British Air, uh, Police Services gave us a, uh, a turbine islander. Um, because they were bringing one out here to demonstrate to try and sell these island turbine islanders, but uh, they weren't a patch on the nomad. Same engine, carry half the load, just useless. The nomads were really good compared to the islander or the turbine islander. So that, that's our that's our crew. So Mick was really good. Uh, uh, Mick used to give the uh, the National Geographic film crew curry and and keep them in line, but. Uh, but but they, they are really good support. So we, we headed off from England, uh, headed off from Farnborough, taxied out in the centre of Farnborough, and Peter had only got his twin licence about six weeks before. And uh, he, was, he was quite a good pilot. He'd done quite a bit of work. And he, uh, um, he, he was going to take off from Farnborough and I was going to do the landing in Australia and we are going to go day and day about. We had a swing over wheel, but we never never swung it over. And uh, uh, we just sat sat there in this bloody just noise box, passing notes to each other because the uh, the mics just couldn't handle the noise. The intercom couldn't handle the noise. And so we took off in pretty crappy weather out of Farnborough, but you know, we had to go. We told everyone we we're going, so off scud running across England, across the Channel. And we took off from Farmer in front of the crowd and Peter's there and he's all over the shop and bloody just couldn't keep a heading. And we had a GPS, we just got it the day before and hadn't learned to use it, so that's sitting in the back here, so I'm just map reading to our stop in Troyes in France. And Peter is all over the place, couldn't keep a heading and I was getting to come round again and I thought, Jesus, I've got a 15,000 miles of this guy and he can't fly straight even. And the only, only compass we have was one of those little bubble compasses sitting up on top of the dash and Peter's there and the next thing he comes he goes the vibrations the whole compass was moving around and Peter's trying to chase his compass around the sky and the bloody thing fell on the floor so so I sort of map crawled all the way and crossing the channel was the visibility of about two miles so I just hoped to Christ that we just and we did we came out pretty pretty well Oh, within two or three miles of the coast. And then once we got over the land, I, I got our position. We just sort of map crawl from, from town to river and, until we got to our destination and we fixed the compass up that night. Um, but the aircraft, uh, oh, we, had, we had a few problems with it the first day, getting caught uh, with bad weather. The performance was just atrocious. With full fuel, we had, in cold weather, we had about 150 foot a minute rate of climb. Uh, and and uh, with no instruments, um, but we did have a VSI. We had uh, uh, just, ba just basic instruments on there and just had a VSI. And uh, 
So you're using sort of two needle widths and trying to milk it just on needle widths of the VSI. It was bloody hopeless. And uh, off we went across the Mediterranean, had all sorts of fun games there, got caught by the, uh, uh, the Egyptians flying over the... Uh, we had approval from the um, civil aviation and the uh, antiquities people to fly over the pyramids for photos but they didn't tell the army, and the army had put in a formal request to shoot us down. <laughs> so we had all sorts of problems there. Landed in Heil, uh, in Saudi Arabia, northern Saudi Arabia, and as I was telling the guys there tonight, we only had two women on the team. We had my wife, she was in one of the support aeroplanes, and uh, a little girl, producer the National Jet, and she was one of those feisty little American women, women's livers, and she was a tough little girl. And uh, she kept her crew, she had, had uh, two crews, she had a sound man and a cameraman, and she really kept them in line. But we landed there and, and there was a red carpet and all the guys are standing there in white robes and the governor comes out and he's, he's a prince, they're all princes. And a uh, uh, big table was set and the British ambassador would come up because neither the American or Australian ambassador and he'd driven all the way up from Riyadh, oh, a thousand kilometres. And uh, he, he came and he got the two girls one side and said, oh, we've got a bit of a problem here because the guys um, don't normally, the women eat separately. Um, he said, I've had a talk to the governor and the governor said, just for tonight, you can be made honorary men. <laughs> <laughs> My wife thought this was really funny, but you should have said, Chris, there was steam coming out of her ears. <laughs> So I thought that was, a, that was a pretty good deal. So we, we had also a great reception everywhere we went, good reception, um, had some really long flights. Um, we got the GPS working by this stage and uh, we did a, an ILS approach into Calcutta with uh, me trying to keep a heading and Peter on the GPS looking at the buddy uh, we only had one approach plate. We had our Jeffersons and we'd, we'd rip them apart and just kept all the visual, all the uh, um, airfield diagrams on them because we, you know, we had no, But thank Christ, the Calcutta one had the bloody uh, ILS on the back of it. And that was the only chart we had. So we did it in bloody full IFR conditions coming into Calcutta with with me, me trying to keep on heading and Peter's calling out the buddy, the distance and what height I should be. <laughs> he sort of taught, was sort of a bit of a GCA and an ILS and uh, everything, but we got on the ground okay, so that was fine. A um, few more adventures down through Burma, had a few problems with Burma with uh, um, not being allowed in because there was uh, the plague and oh, we had lots of problems with the Indians. They wouldn't let us out. I uh, wouldn't open the door, so we went there at four o'clock in the morning and all the customs guys were asleep. And we'd seen this before, if you haven't been stamped out, you get questions, so we just rummaged around in the desk till we found their stamps and stamped all their passports. <laughs> these guys on their stretchers in the office, <laughs> so we stamped ourselves out of India. <laughs> Coming in, uh, out of Singapore, into Palembang, in Sumatra, refueled, took off with full 12,500 pounds, and the engine stopped and we fell out of the sky into a rice paddy and it's pretty noisy bouncing over paddy buns, I tell you. Uh, so crashed into this bloody rice paddy, just um, 
We had nowhere else to go. There's burning stuff around us where they're burning trees. But I thought, these Yanks are really perceptive because they pick up on things so quickly because Peter was actually flying. And uh, so we just pointed at the ground and bang, bang, bang over the rice paddies and, and the, the aircraft stayed in one piece. I don't know, we'd bounced over these one foot high walls but had big bungee cords on the undercarriage. A modern aeroplane would just rip the undercarriage off. And we ground to a halt and Peter looked around and said, shit mate, I think we've crashed. And I thought, jeez, they're so sharp these next. They're really, they're really, really right on the ball. <laughs> so we had a spare engine waiting in Brisbane and got the, uh, uh, got it sent up by Qantas. Um, to be flown in by the Nomad. And in the meantime, I sent Peter off, and Peter basically had a nervous breakdown at that stage. So we're 50 kilometres from the nearest farm. Uh, so people had never seen aeroplanes before, so we eventually got the local police, I don't know, someone in uniform, and he took Peter off. And I didn't see Peter for 24 hours. But he got down to the main town and, and the district uh, guide they thought that we were spies and where have you come from and there's all sorts of kerfuffle. So he gave him one phone call. So what did Peter do? Instead of ringing Australia or ringing Jakarta to tell the guys what had happened and all that, he rings his girlfriend in San Francisco to cry on a child. <laughs> up his phone calls. <laughs> so I built the airstrip. We, we got these guys at the standard rate of $1.50 a day and... I had them in lines chopping down these paddy buns of some poor farmer. I don't know whose who's paddy buns we chopped in. They probably starved for the next year because they couldn't plant their rice, but we built an airstrip. Nomad came in uh, with a whole lot of struggling on poles and ropes and that, and it was filthy dust. We heaved the other engine up, got the other engine going, and off we were. And uh, the rest, as I say, is history. We got to Australia. Um, it was a good, good trip. Oh, there, there we are being... Uh, Having our glands felt. <laughs> Best thing that happened to us all day. The, uh, so, and we came through here, I think there were a few photos out the front here. The aircrafts then subsequently flew from England to South Africa to recreate the first flight there, and uh, last year flew across the Atlantic to do the Alcock and Brown thing. Um, I flew to Farnborough last year at uh, at the air show and had an engine fire in front of 150,000 people and nearly went into the crowd, but that's all right. Um, the um, aircraft now going into Brooklyn's where they're all built and it's going to be retired and which is really good. So that that Vimy's flown, I'd say, five times more than any other Vimy that was ever built, even though it is a replica. So, so we're pretty satisfied with that. So that's the Vimy story. Well, that's what happened to the engine. We dropped the valve and there was no noise. It was just like switching the ignition off. Uh, right, so that's that's the Vimy. So that, that was recreating the Smith Brothers flight. They had a few adventures too, but they had two engineers and they were able to go to RAF bases nearly every night or every second night and the, the Air Force people had, had worked on the aeroplanes. Their two mechanics just worked and worked. They had so many problems with those Rolls-Royce engines. And an interesting thing from Ross Smith's uh, point of view. Uh, I was going through the archives of Brooklyn's Museum in England, which is just a room with papers stacked to the wall at 45 degrees. It's just a treasure of history that they, they've just got to do something about. 
And I found a file on, on uh, Ross Smith because he was killed at Brooklands a few months after this test flying a seaplane. Oh, that's the Nomad landing, yeah. Oh, that's, the landing. <laughs> that's all in Indonesia. I believe the strip was of adequate length for the Nomad. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just, yeah. Just. Yeah. There we go. Changing the engine. And then that was taking off. <laughs> then they couldn't get the islander started, so that was there for four days. <laughs> so that's, that's heading off. Uh, that's the that's the Indonesian Air Force uh, historic flight DC-3. This is landing in Darwin. We landed at Darwin, and was, uh, this is at at uh, Konkari. They refuelled there, and we found the the fuel cans that had been left there from 1919. <laughs> yeah. And that was in Darwin, that was the spot that they landed in in Darwin. Uh, that's my daughters and my wife. But uh, that, was a, that was quite a good trip. We had a bit of fun. Um, you, you seem to have a lot of engine failures, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, I'll tell you about Ross, I'll tell you about, well, we didn't have a lot of engine, we only had one. Ross Smith had lots of engine failure. I found this, this letter from Ross Smith, and I don't know, it would have been destroyed instantly in this day and age, shredded. It was a letter from Ross Smith to the um, chairman of Rolls-Royce, Lord somebody or other. And, it's, and it said, uh, Dear Sir, you would have read in the press and from our telegrams that we've successfully completed their mission. And throughout it, uh, we, we have been uh, promoting Rolls-Royce engines um, for the benefit and uh, prestige of the empire. And you will have noted how many um, articles and papers and things um, and it went on like this saying how we've done it for the, and you will be aware of a number of incidents that have happened that have not been released to the press and we have suppressed these you know, for the honour of the Empire and then at the bottom it says but it, it grieves me to say sir that Rolls Royce Eagle engines are rubbish <laughs> <laughs> So I thought, that's a, that's a, oh, what a great letter, so I've got a copy of that. <laughs> Blaine, what engines did you have? We had the Chev 454 truck engines. They are three, 300 horsepower, but they're about the same as... And then for the trip we did to South Africa, that was the BMW V12s, which were beautiful, smooth engines, still 300 horsepower. The Chevys used 200 litres an hour. The uh, for the same horsepower the BMWs used 140 litres now. Lane, perhaps you could just take us through the course and explain what you felt were the uh, the uh, sort of tiring and, and sort of the, uh, the endurance uh, uh, leaves of the course from your point of view. Or uh, the, the, uh, well, we went from Athens to Crete and down to Cairo uh, and then we went right across here. This is Hyle where the, the girls were made honorary men. Into Bahrain, we had a great reception in Bahrain, uh, out in the desert. They built a little airstrip out in the desert. That was building the airstrip all the way up there. Uh, so we had, had to do a bit of work on the airstrip. <laughs> uh, we, we had a really long flight uh, from Delhi to uh, over here, from Delhi, Delhi to Calcutta. That was 12 hours in the air, uh, which is a bloody long time. Everyone says, "Oh, you know, how'd you go to the toilet?" Everyone was. Yeah, we talk. We just we just had had a out of the harbour actually. It was just a tube with a funnel on it and a little vacuum thing there. 
and as I said, the su suction was good enough to be efficient without being pleasant. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, then from Calcutta, uh, round to Rangoon, uh, uh, to Penang, and this is where we fell out of the sky. If we'd been another five miles further, we would have been out over the water, and that would have been it. Uh, so luckily we fell out of the sky a bit. Uh, had a few adventures down here. Went to Adelaide. On the way back from Adelaide, um, it was just Bevan, uh, Peter had gone home, so it was just Bevan myself in the aircraft. And we flew back to Luskintyre in the Hunter Valley there. And uh, just out west, outside West Island, I saw sort of, the water temperatures garbing all this steam, so I landed in a wheat paddock outside West Island. And, uh, We'd broken a, uh, one of the fittings on the radiator and dumped all the water. So uh, the farmer took us into town. I got a little blowtorch and a block of solder and came back and sold all that. We took off and got the last time. Mm -hmm. These things had one of these old airplanes. And Lane, perhaps you could just then take us through, because uh, you've effectively through 50% of the time uh, coming in with Vimy. Yeah. Your, your solo flight reenacting him. Right, with, with the Abra Larkin, the Abra Larkin was, was a completely different kettle of fish. That was that was a real aeroplane, a 1927 uh, Avro Avian, uh, been brought to Australia new, beautiful little aeroplane, much classier aeroplane than the De Havilland Moth uh, against which it was a direct competitor. Hand, that's the little avian. Uh, I found this, the remains of this under a house in Brisbane. And we got all the files from the uh, from CASA, and uh, the test flight was done by Bert Hinkler when he was the test pilot for Avros. So Bert Hinkler actually flew that aeroplane when he was the factory test pilot, uh, which was really nice. And CASA pulled out the old file, which had ceased in 1946 for that aeroplane, reactivated it, and the last letter taking it off the register in 46, my first letter saying we want to rebuild it when on top. So. It was really nice of them to to continue the same file. No one had ever taken up that registration, so they gave us the same registration and everything was the same aeroplane. So I, I completely rebuilt that aeroplane in uh, in Caboolture, up near Brisbane. Uh, we shipped it to England uh, in a Martin Air um, 747. I was telling the Dutchman we, we took it out of the, out of the plane and, uh, and skip all in in Holland and it took us four days to get out because they wouldn't release us because we hadn't arrived. <laughs> and at one stage we nearly had to put it on the Dutch register to get it to fly it out of Holland because they wouldn't accept, the, there is no, no nothing, nothing here to say this aeroplane's ever arrived because it came in as cargo and was wanting to fly out under its own steam. But it was all sorted out and it was quite funny in there. Um, we flew to a few shows around England and Ireland and uh, um, I rolled it up in a bit of a ball there at one stage just before the thing and wrote the thing off uh, and all hands to the pumps and the old Brits got into it and charged three times what they quoted and the insurance company went to the risk and all that sort of stuff but everyone thought they were going to make their fortunes out of it uh, and we got it there, took off the only cross-trip uh, cross takeoff that's ever been done at Farnborough, went to Farnborough and taking off from the Farnborough show again and it was just 20 knots across the runway and I couldn't do it. 
Uh, so they said, you've got to go, it's more important. So they shifted the parked aeroplanes off the cross trip and let me take off on the cross runway on the public day. Um, they said that's the first time in 50, 60 years of Farnborough that we've ever ever allowed an aircraft to take off on the cross trip. So I thought that was that was really nice of them to do that. Uh, so out across the channel and, and the weather was just horrendous. And once again, uh, these stupid things, the cloud base was like 250 feet down across Kent. And then into the channel, just couldn't see anything. All I could see was, was white waves. But the British have a great radar following thing. Uh, it's really good. And uh, they, was, they were giving me traffic all the time. They said, right, we've got you. Uh, and they said, there's, there's traffic at 12 o'clock. And, and what they're doing, they're giving me traffic on the cross-channel ferries because I was right down on the water. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so that, that was pretty exciting and for an Australian, the Europeans do it all the time, they flock this bad weather but, uh, but after a while I figured out that if it's just drizzling rain, this one mile visibility moves with you and you've just got to have faith that it's not going to turn into a solid piece of cloud, you see so I flew right across Europe with this one mile, in this little one mile cocoon <laughs> which you, you would get comfortable after a while with it, it was raining and wet uh, Fuel tank failed, coming into Genoa, I finished up with bloody four inches of fuel around my feet. Um, uh, so that was the front tank failed, at least that was one the Poms had built. And then I took off from Brindisi to fly across to Greece on a sunny day and it started raining. And the top tank that they'd built, rebuilt, that was split. So I flew the whole way back, hoping to Christ that uh, we didn't run out of fuel. And I had finished up the night in the hospital with fuel in the eyes and that from the uh, from the top tank learning, uh, running fuel on me. But we had, we had a few good trips. Bev was the only support on that. It was only me and Bev. So Bev would, Bev would jump on uh, an airliner and go ahead and then she'd get on the phone. I think she spent $3,500 on phone calls because you can't get clearances more than 24, or some countries, 48 hours ahead. Everyone says, why didn't you get all your clearances? It doesn't work like that. Airline, airliners have set clearances. And our big problem, we were below, we were below 11,000 feet. So we're actually flying off the air routes. Even though we're flying under the air routes, we weren't on the air routes. Uh, so the military starts getting involved because you become spy planes and all that sort of stuff. And a few times, you know, uh, you take off and you get a clearance to fly at 18,000, so we'll, whatever height you want, you know, and just turn the altitude off and you transponder and... You know, what, what altitude are you at? What do you want? <laughs> 18,000? Yeah, 18,000. Sounds good to me. <laughs> and meanwhile, you're the 1,500 foot trying to get over the trees. <laughs> uh, but that's the sort of thing. But Bev would go, and she'd, she'd be um, there ahead doing the arrangements, making the clearances, getting the hotels. And I wouldn't really know where she was. And then I'd ring home and she ring the kids and say, oh, mum's in Bombay or mum's in Singapore. Uh, it was good in Pakistan. I taxied into, into Karachi, expecting not to see her into India. And uh, uh, going into the ground frequency, and this female voice says, oh, park in front of the tower. And she'd got herself up into the tower. And <laughs> they gave her the microphone. <laughs> so that was good. So that, that, was, that was a wonderful little aeroplane to fly. And after flying the Vimy, I, the freedom that 
Bert Hinkler would have had compared to the first guys. Um, it was it was great. I, I just like I didn't have anyone to bother bother about but myself. I did my own thing. I uh, took my own risks. Stopped where I wanted to stop. I had the 14 hours fuel. The longest I did was 12 hours, which is a bloody long time to sit in a little aeroplane like that. Uh, but we came down, repeated it all, came through here, went across to Perth. Um, I tried and tried and tried to sell that aeroplane here in Australia, but I just couldn't sell it. And I had to sell it because we actually mortgaged our house for that. So an American Greek Herrick bought it and took it to the States and repainted it in a light blue colour. And Amelia Earhart was the first person to fly solo from one side, one coast to the other coast. And uh, she did that in an Avro Avian. So they found a girl who looked just like Amelia, and that little aeroplane recreated Amelia's flight across America. And uh, it's beautifully looked after and now goes to air shows, so I'm happy that it hasn't been locked up in someone's garage. People see this, it goes to 20 or 30 air shows a year in the Same States. Engine. Same engine, yeah. And, uh, do you have the Cirrus or did you have an inverted? No, 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 it was the, the, uh, the Haviland Gypsy Motor, but the upright one. Uh, and uh, could you just indicate uh, the force compared to the Vimy and the 1950? Well, it was, it was almost exactly the same. Uh, this this is more of the course we followed. Um, went to Hyle again. Uh, this, the same governor picked me up, but no fanfare this time. Yeah. He picked me up and <laughs> he picked me up himself actually, and drove me down and. Uh, uh, put me in the granny flat, which was the little palace beside the big palace. <laughs> <laughs> it was Sunday. Uh, my secretary came out, uh, my uh, valet and all that, and this is the little palace, which is the granny flat for visitors. And they said, do you want your washing done? And I said, well, I've only got my underpants and socks and a, a T-shirt. And they went into town. They got some dry cleaner out, knocked him up. They dry cleaned them, came back and... Here's my iron underpants and brown paper and everything already for the next morning, so that was good. <laughs> um, it, oh, uh, we had a good good trip in, in Nagpur. Um, landed in Nagpur, couldn't get any fuel. No fuel there. Why didn't you tell me there any fuel? Oh, we, uh, uh, we put in an ATAM to say we've got no fuel. And I said, well, they didn't give me the ATAM. And they said, oh, we haven't taken it up to the tower yet. <laughs> so there were 150 44-gallon drums. So they got the boys out and they tipped every drum up and they got a cupful out of each drum, put it in the fuel tank and went round and round and round to filter it. And we got enough fuel to, uh, to get me to Calcutta. Uh, we drove out of the gate of the hotel in the morning and ran over a motorcycle and killed him. It was really good. So... So while the crowd, crowd had beaten the bus driver up and smashing all the windows, I got a taxi to the airport to get going and the uh, took off, hit a bloody great eagle that hung on the bloody wing strut there for about 10 minutes. and uh, So that was a pretty good day, that day. I had a out over Calcutta, was, oh, took off in this thunderstorm. In the, in the Bay of Bengal, it's, it's noted for it, and I just couldn't see anything. I was down on the water, following the mangrove trees along, and the delta of the uh, the river coming out there, I couldn't see across the, the creeks of the delta, so I had to fly up until it got narrow, in this brown gloom about 20 foot above the water, and I couldn't see straight ahead, and then get on it and come back down, and then up the next one, and up the next one. 
But even that, after a few few hours, that became comfortable and natural too. It's amazing what becomes natural. <laughs> so what was what, flying over water with a single engine? What what trust did you have in that engine at various times? Oh, uh, bloody aeroplanes don't know that where they're over water or in the circuit. Right? <laughs> so you didn't, you didn't they're stupid now. They just <laughs> aeroplanes don't know. The instrument, the instruments worry because you know as soon as you fly over water, the oil pressure goes like this, and the temperature goes up. And the engine itself doesn't know. <laughs> it's only the instruments that know you're flying over water. I, I think that's that's about enough. You should be on to the. Uh, Thank Well, there you go, Grant. Uh, how about that for an interesting story, if I've ever heard one? Oh, mate, I tell you what, I, I'm pretty sure uh, Lang could have uh, spoken a whole lot longer and had a whole lot more tales to tell us. Um, I probably would have enjoyed listening for at least another hour as he. Uh, it sounded like he had a heck of a lot more stories to tell. But, uh, yeah, definitely a good one for the archives and one to keep and, and listen to if you're ever considering doing a little bit of uh, cross-countries and wondering about, oh, my God, it's so hard, oh, I've got to do this, well... Spare a thought for these guys and what it was like flying that Vimy or the Avian for all around the world. Actually, it turns out that Lang is an ex-Australian Army pilot. In fact, I'd love to hear some stories of his time uh, in military aviation. I, I always love to, to hear pilot stories. I mean, we've heard that from Matt Hall about uh, his journey into the uh, Defence Force here and how he came to become a fighter pilot. It'd be interesting to know how uh, how Lang yeah, took military flying here. With the well, Army, which is a you know a different process, I guess, to joining the the RAAF. Yeah, we'll have to ask and see if he's interested in having a having a chat with us yep. about that. That would be a good one for the future. Good thinking, mate. Yeah, Grant. So we just should mention here that uh, Lang has a website, and that's uh, www.next-horizon.org. So that's Next Horizon with a hyphen in the middle there. And, uh, yeah, it's got some uh, photos and of uh, some of his adventures. And uh, flying is not the only adventure that uh, he likes to engage in by the looks of his website here. It's uh, well worth a look. Yeah, no, he's done quite a few things. Uh, also, uh, so in addition to Lang giving us the permission to... Uh, to use his speech on our podcast, we'd also like to thank Mark Pilkington and the the crew from the Australian National Aviation Museum. Uh, they hosted the uh, the evening's event, and uh, they were also the ones who organised the DC three flights. And as part of the 75th anniversary of the Ivers uh, force landing at Holbury, which we'll discuss more in a future episode. So yeah, thanks to everyone at the Australian National Aviation Museum, and thanks to Mark Pilkington for helping us out there. And you can see more of the uh, collection at the uh, museum by going to www.aarg.com.au. That's Alpha Alpha Romeo Golf.com.au. It's a really interesting museum that they've got there. It's uh, not the biggest aviation museum that you've ever seen, but boy, some of the aircraft they've got in that collection, uh, walking straight to that hangar and looking straight down the nose of a uh, Mirage fighter. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty impressive stuff, and they've, they've got um, you know, quite a collection. Yeah, no, it's great. and it, uh, it was actually somewhat reminiscent of being at Wangaratta at Precision um, Aviation, where they, Precision Aerospace, where they had a... Uh, mirage in there as well as a lot of other aircraft but uh yeah i shouldn't talk more about that because i'll just start drooling and um shivering uncontrollably well we shouldn't let that happen as i say folks we were going to originally uh pop lang's speech into one of our normal episodes but uh, i'm sure you didn't want to be downloading uh, about a two and a half hour podcast (laughs) yeah we just thought we'd uh, release this one as a separate one we certainly hope you've enjoyed it before we do finish off this episode though we uh would like to uh mention again the uh, little project we've got going with owens up from 
our last episode. Owen's up down there at www.thereandback.com. We just like to remind you about the little uh, giveaway that we've got going. And uh, Owen tells us that he's had quite a response. We had uh, asked folks to uh, send in some suggestions for places that uh, you might like Owen to visit in his Round Australia trek that he's undertaking next year. And uh, we'd ask people to send some uh, suggestions into our website, but uh, actually nobody's done that. Everybody's gone to Owen's website and sent these suggestions straight to him. So uh, he tells us that uh, there's been some really good ones. It is a pretty cool website. You know, it is a really good website, Grant. And um, we'd just like to mention, of course, that the winning entry, if you like, will receive a uh, personally signed copy of Owen's book, which is called Down to Earth. Grant and I now have a copy each of that and um, really looking forward to getting some time free so I can uh, hook in and read that one. Yeah, same. It's it's getting the time to read. That's the fun part. <laughs> yeah, get across to Owen's website and um, yeah, participate with him and uh, think of some suggestions within reason, of course. I mean, he can't go too far off his, uh, off his course, but if you can think of some place that you think uh, might be significant for him to stop at along the way, then he's uh, enthusiastically waiting to uh, read your suggestions. So, uh, yeah, check that out. So we'll end that episode right there, Grant, and we've got another episode coming up very shortly in our normal format of uh, news and comment. As we like to point out every week to you, our sound effects and music come courtesy of soundsnap.com, our title music track, and in fact, any other music track you hear on this website comes from Brian Simpson. Our title music track is called You Name It 5. Check out show notes on our website, www.plainecrazydownunder. Please feel free to send us any feedback you like. Our email address is plainecrazydownunder at gmail.com. We also now have a YouTube page. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. But, uh, yes, we took some video from the DC3 flight that we did recently. So, uh, folks, uh, have, have a look at that. That's youtube.com slash plainecrazydownunder. And um, you can also check out our fan page on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash plainecrazydownunder. Where else can people find us, Grant? Well, you know, it's anywhere that Playing Crazy Down Under is mentioned, which can also include Twitter, where you'll find us as PCDU. You can find Steve online as Steve Vischer, that's all one word, on Twitter and Facebook, and via his blog, www.ozflyer.com, that's A-U-S, Flyer. Uh, you can find Grant online as Falcon124, and there's a story behind that one. Uh, you can find him on Twitter and via his blog at blog.flymefriendly.com. Excellent, folks. We really hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for all your support. We really do appreciate it, folks. Uh, until next time, when you're looking around the world of online aviation podcasts, always remember this. It's what's down under that counts. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.plaincrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks.